Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I am joined by Adam Gerachu, the Neubauer Family Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. We will be discussing her fascinating first book, World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, published by Princeton University Press in 2019. The work has received immense praise from academics and non-specialists alike, winning a plethora of awards, including the Franz Fanon Prize, the W.E.B. Du Bois' Distinguished Book Award, and the J. David Greenstone Book Prize. It re-narrates the 20th century history of decolonization. Gerachu shows that African, African-American, and Caribbean anti-colonial nationalists were not solely nation-builders. Responding to the experience of racialized sovereign inequality, dramatized in the book by interwar Ethiopia and Liberia, Black Atlantic thinkers and politicians challenged international racial hierarchy and articulated alternative visions of world-making between the 1930s and the 1970s. Seeking to create an egalitarian post-imperial world, they attempted to transcend legal, political, and economic domination. They sought to secure um, a right to self-determination within the newly founded United Nations, constitute regional federations in Africa and the Caribbean, and create the new international economic order. World-making after empire traces the richness and ambition of post-war attempts to reimagine the international order uncovering a multitude of political projects that decolonization entailed. Dr. Gerachu, welcome to New Books in History, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Thanks so much for having me. As is customary on our channel, I will start us off by asking about the genesis of world-making after empire. How have your intellectual trajectories uh, led you to write to the writing of the book? Sure, yeah. Um, So this book started as my dissertation. Um, I was a joint PhD candidate in political science and African-American studies at Yale University. And I think you can see how it's informed both by an interest in uh, Black internationalism and Pan-Africanism coming out of broadly African-American studies and Africana studies and uh, by political theory. Um, So I think it was really intersecting um, a few intersecting debates, political and theoretical, that shaped the book. One is um, it was written, of course, in the post-9-11 period, uh, a period with a resurgent American imperialism, and raised a whole set of questions about the transformation of international order um, in the wake of America's preemptive wars uh, in Iraq, um, uh, to war in Afghanistan, and then later the intervention in Libya. And you know, there, in political theory, this in, leading up to this period, uh, there had been this kind of uh, enthusiasm for what was called a post-Westphalian world order, a world order that would break with kind of the nation-state form that would maybe rethink and reimagine non-intervention sovereign equality with the hope of generating a more um, humane uh, international order, uh, international order that protected the rights of individuals. And in some ways, uh, you know, there there was this erosion of um, sovereign equality, of non-intervention, but it seemed like what it yielded actually was a 
imperial power rather than uh, um, the protection of individual rights. Uh, so one ambition of the book is to return to a period when sovereign equality especially emerged as a central principle and to s- trace the ways in which ideas of international equality were debated and institutionalized during the age of decolonization. Relatedly, I'm really interested in questions of Black internationalism and Pan-Africanism. Um, so I um, you know, was interested in how earlier formations of black internationalism translated or didn't translate into the into the age of decolonization and um you know i think a lot of there's been a lot of work on the rich versions of anti-colonial internationalism in the interwar period uh and that's a period in which uh these visions aren't tied to the state yet um so i both try and think about how these figures extend those preoccupations, but they do so in the context in which the state is the kind of institutional basis of the international order. And so theirs is really an internationalism of the of the nation state, of the state. Um, so these are the two kinds of things the book uh, brings together. Uh, and it, it again, emerging out of the, the connections between political theory and African-American studies. Yeah. You set out by offering a new political theory of decolonization. So the book argues that we have missed the full extent of anti-colonial nationalism's radical departure from the world of European empires. So how can your analysis of Azikive, Du Bois, Krumah, Padmore, Williams, the so-called university generation of the 1930s, help us rethink empire and international order as analytical categories? Great. Yeah. So one um, intervention uh, that I think this set of actors makes, and it really their analysis does begin in the 1930s, is to um, imagine the world, uh, imagine the imperial world, not only as structured by a set of bilateral relationships between a metropole and its colonies, um, but to conceive of empire as a structure of unequal integration and racialized hierarchy. Um, they do this in two kinds of ways. One, a number of these pig- figures, Padmore especially, Du Bois to some extent, um, are right about the experience of the three black, you know, three black sovereign states at this time, Haiti, Liberia, and Ethiopia. And these become a model for them about the the ways in which imperial encroachment, imperial domination persists, even when there's formal uh, um, independence. Um, the second way they do this, again, here, Eric Williams would be important, uh, Du Bois is important, CLR James is important, is tell a longer story about the significance of the, international, of the transatlantic slave trade and slavery to the making of the modern world. So from its very foundations on this view, the world was both integrated by experience, by the kind of histories of European imperial expansion but integrated in uneven and unequal ways um, and and thereby generating these forms of inequality and hierarchy that persisted into the 20th century. Um, So it's this kind of international and global framing of the problem of what empire is that then generates uh, this thinking about uh, about world anti-colonial world making. Fascinating. 
And new historical scholarship has revealed the imperial origins of the League of Nations and the entire interwar global political architecture, as it were. How do you mobilize this historical experience of Ethiopia and Liberia's burdened membership in the League to examine the nature of racialized unequal integration into the post-1918 world order? Yeah, great. Um, so, yeah, there's been a, so much work, uh, historical work, on um, the, the same topics, right? Rethinking the imperial foundations of international law and beginning to do the work of reimagining decolonization. Um, so what I do in this chapter is I think there's been especially a lot of interest on the mandate system when thinking about the internationalization of empire, the ways in which some form of international administration of colonies was introduced and the, poss- the both the ways that that entrenched force, forms of empire, right, and made, uh, and made um, this kind of empire subject to international opinion and international oversight in really productive ways. And here I'm thinking especially of the central work of Susan Peterson in her book, The Guardians. Um, so what I try to do in this chapter is focus less on the mandate system and highlight these two um, uh, African states, Liberia, which was a founding member of um, the League, and Ethiopia, which joins in 1923. Both of them, um, I mean, there would be many questions about whether Ethiopia should be admitted at all, but ultimately it's admitted. But for both states, there's a worry that um, that ongoing practices of slavery within the territories of these two countries um, means that, you know, they're they haven't actually they they don't they haven't fulfilled the requirements for membership. But, you know, whereas we think of, say, something like the 19th century standard of civilization as a kind of exclusionary binary uh, boundary, um, what we get here is that they are incorporated as members of the League, but membership is taken to be a mechanism for uh, supporting uh, supporting slash disciplining them to become proper members, proper states and proper members of the League of Nations. Um, so what I argue is that this generates a form of burdened membership. And what I mean by burdened membership is that obligations, international obligations are, are more onerous uh, than the rights that membership uh, secures and that those rights are also conditional on having uh, fulfilled or realized these obligations. I also say this was a racialized form of membership. And what I mean by here, by that, is not just that these were African states and, and, and black states, but that in the kind of, in this 10-year, almost um, a little over 10-year period, uh, this constant preoccupation with uh, the whether or not Ethiopia and Liberia have met their obligations, this constant answer that um, um, they haven't or they're incapable of meeting their obligations increasingly uh, g- generates a racialized form of sovereignty, uh, uh, a sense that actually there's some, um, some a fundamental reason that these states are incapable of, of of realizing uh, the kind of um, ideal form of, of, of the state um, and and of being full members of the of, uh, the League of Nations. And the conventional accounts of, of the rise of post-war anti-colonialism have focused on the nation and, and, and state-making processes 
And you actually demonstrated alternatives to the nation state persisted at the height of decolonization in the post-war era. So how does your study of largely forgotten projects of regional federation in the West Indies and Africa expand our understanding of self-determination as a, as a concept? Yeah, here too, I should say that I'm, um, you know, uh, participating in a conversation with historians um, uh, who've worked primarily on the Francophone context, like Fred Cooper and Gary Wilder, who similarly are interested in this ways in which federation, and in that case, um, uh, French federation, the idea that one could transcend the imperial structure and reimagine the relationship between France and its colonies, was a way of securing, um, you know, a meaningful vision of self-rule. Um, so I look at Anglophone uh, thinkers in both the African and Caribbean context um, who are, are making the same kind of critique. They're arguing that um, given the, the ways in which uh, the international order is structured by deep forms of inequality and hierarchy, especially around um, the question of um, economic dependencies uh, that, you know, these small states on them on their own would be constantly subject to dependence, hierarchy and intervention. Um, and that so they both but here, my kind of um, the people I'm thinking with are uh, Eric Williams and uh, Kwame Nkrumah. Both of them argue that forms of regional federation would be a way of kind of minimizing or exiting these international structures of domination. Um, And so I look at this as an example of trying to use regional institutions as the basis of realizing national independence. Um, um, And I think what's really important about this is it shows the one, it shows a certain flexibility about thinking about sovereignty, right? I think it's very striking, for instance, that Ghana's Republican Constitution of 1960 um, includes a clause that sovereignty can be um, delegated in whole or in part uh, to a regional federation. And it alerts us to the ways in which I think that kind of flexibility, some flexibility about the thinking of sovereignty at the regional level, alerts us to the ways in which um, this critique of, 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 of kind of persistence forms of hierarchy and dependence uh, generated um, or propelled um, um, anti-colonial nationalists to pursue these regionalist and internationalist ambitions. So I think what's really interesting here is that this is a form of internationalism that's not anti or non-national, right? It's precisely the attempt to think through what national independence requires in an unequal world that generates um, the search for regional institutions. Mm-hmm. So this interplay between nationalism and internationalism or cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism even reminds me of that liberal Mazzinian phase uh, or stage of the development of European nationalism in the 1860s. Uh, how does your approach help us reframe nationalism as a historical force? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I think generally um, 
you know, like others who've written in this vein, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Manu Goswami, Glenda Sluga, and others, mm-hmm. a number of thinkers, a number of historians have made this point that uh, we have to study nationalism in historical context, in historical specificity, to think about the ways, what combinations, what possibilities it generated. And um, and that these, it's not to say that nationalism necessarily entail, entails cosmopolitanism or internationalist ambitions, yes. but I think any nationalist project has to, it has to imagine itself in a world, you know, and it has to have some concept, some vision of what, what it's in what world or context uh, uh, it's inaugurating its political project. And it has to figure out what its relationship to that world is going to be. Um, And so in this case, uh, this primary emphasis on, um, you know, as I was saying, these relations of dependence and hierarchy uh, generates uh, versions of interna- regionalism or internationalism that try and that try and um, they take several moments, right? At certain moments, in a, it's an attempt to set up barriers, uh, right? Um, so one version of that in the right to self-determination is around non-intervention as the yeah. central element of the right to self-determination, right? A second version, as we've talked about in the regionalism uh, exp- version, is to create new forms of regionalist links, uh, internationalist in the in that version, as a way of mitigating some of the consequences of, of these larger hierarchies. And a third version in the new international economic order takes the form of um, trying to uh, you know, take the world as one unequal unit and imagine forms of redistribution within that one world. So even within this version of kind of the combination of nationalism and internationalism, I think we see three different strategies for how this relationship is, um, um, you know, imagined and constituted. I think there's a, you know, another part that's less present in the book, but I think is important is just how, you know, the circulation of ideas, the circulation of people becomes a really important vector for how um, how these nationalists imagine the projects that they're engaged in. So one one specific example, again, on the regional federations piece is is the reading of the American Federalists from the 18th yes. century and the ways in which that shapes the imagination of federation and regionalism. It's incredible. In my previous research, I've, I've looked at a number of Balkan intellectuals from the 1870s who had also been inspired by American federalism in their own thinking of or about a post-imperial order in the Balkans. And some of our listeners might be keen to learn more about the idea of pan-Africanism. Could you perhaps walk us through the details of, of this vision and, and how it rose and fell in, in, in both Africa and, and the Caribbean uh, in the 1960s? Yeah, great. I think that's a great question. I mean, um, different versions of it rose and fell at different moments, but let's, we can just take the question of the federations for a mm-hmm. second. I um, think that, um, you know, one, one way I try to, well, one way I kind of explain this failure, I think, is by saying, um, for Nkrumah and Williams, um, 
in order for Federation to do this work of, of undoing and mitigating against uh, these relations of hierarchy, um, it had to be a highly centralized federation. It had to be a federal, a central federal government capable of, of uh, you know, organizing um, robust visions of taxation, of de- development. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a planning state. The federation had to be a, a planning state. And as I tried to show, there was a lot of. Um, anxiety, right, that this was going to just create another form of hierarchy, right, that member states would now be um, subject to the authority and power of a a regional hegemon or a regional um, uh, government that that would kind of replay these dynamics of, of domination, possibly. You know, in retrospect, it's been a couple of years now since the book has come out, I've, I've been thinking about other possibilities that explain the failure of these federations. Um, so one is that in all of these cases, I mean, even in the case of, of the Caribbean, which which experiments with federation before the island states actually gain, gain independence, in each of these cases, um, there had been uh, the devolution of power to the territorial units to the had already happened. Um, uh, so, for instance, universal suffrage is introduced in Jamaica in 1944. National parties are formed. They're competing and organizing themselves around the territory of a kind of a, a, a territorially organized polity called Jamaica, right? And so, by the time the debates real about federation really get formed and kick off in uh and that would be in like 1958 there's already a set of attachments and connections to politics organized at this territorial unit the same is true in the african context so um i mean in that case it's even more true because independence happens first and and um and then federation is is debated but um I think what this sequence means is that the possibility of building the popular base of federation, right, organizing and mobilizing around a federally organized territorial unit um, never fully occurs, right? Instead, what happens is both projects end up becoming more kind of interstate negotiations rather than um, forms of politics that are federal all the way down. Um, I should speak about, you know, I'm happy to take up also the question of more generally the fall of self-determination now, or we can leave it for later. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's on my list. It's on my list. Okay, good. Uh, Right. um, Post-colonial worldmaking projects, I mean, we're not historically static and, and you showed that quite forcefully. You show that the early failures of federalization and, and troubled independence uh, that followed spurred a new round of ambitious recasting of the idea of sovereign equality. Uh, how did the likes of Michael Manley and, and Julius Nerere seek to articulate a new political economy of self-determination? So that's the, the second stage of, of world making. Mm-hmm. How did the idea of a new international economic order fare in the 1970s? Great. So yes. Um, so you know these both of these federations projects we've just been talking about mm-hmm. basically come to an end in the early 1960s. Um, the federa- the West Indian Federation, um, 
end, comes to an end in 1962 when Trinidad and Jamaica gain independence. Um, in the African context, the Organization of African Unity comes into being in 1963, and that's really a, t- a treaty organization. Um, so it kind of, it it's, it suppresses or displaces the possibility of a more radical version of political integration. Um, this moment also coincides with um, a growing uh, economic concern, um, the de- you know described as the declining terms of trade. Many of these states are primary goods producers. The price of their goods are declining dramatically on the international markets, and it means that their capacity to um, engage in the developmental visions and ambitions they have, which depend on foreign currency, et cetera, are being, you know, are undermined, right? Or their capacity to buy the goods that they they would need for those projects is being undermined and diminished. Um, So what makes the, I think, the new international economic order distinctive from the regional federations is this view that... um, it, it takes for granted that we do live in one integrated world, um, but but it's an unequal world. In, but instead of trying to delink or ex, you know remove oneself a little bit from that world, it says let's let's take on the problem of inequality at the international level. And both Nerere and uh, Manly do this in part um, by recasting that inequality as an international division of labor by likening the relationship between uh, post-colonial state to and and you know and global north as a relationship between w- worker and capital or sometimes between rural and urban sectors what this analogy to the domestic division of labor enables is a way of thinking about how the mechanisms of distribution, uh, you know, inaugurated with the welfare state in the domestic space might be internationalized and globalized. Um, So here there is two versions of the radicalization of sovereign equality. One, there is a claim that each state um, should be able to participate in the decision, in economic decision making, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, That the UN General Assembly should be thought of as a kind of Parliament of the world, and that it um, yeah. it should it should play an important role in setting the terms of governing uh, the global economic order. The second radicalization is that sovereign equality also has material consequences; that it grounds a claim for uh, redistribution of um, of the world's wealth, and it does so on the basis on the grounds that the uh, post-colonial world has contributed to the world's wealth. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I mean, in both these cases, I mean, in the Balkans in the 1870s and in West Indies and Africa in the 1960s, the desire for state power trumps all other uh, alternative visions of how this new order might look like. And now this is a, a billion-dollar question uh, but why is this the case? Where is this fascination with the state form coming from, and and how do you how does it it operate in in your in your uh, work? I think this is a really hard question. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I think, it, and I agree with you. It is the question. Um, I don't think I have. I definitely don't give a, mm-hmm. an answer to this question in the book. Um, 
And uh, I, I, I'm hesitant to offer one now too, I guess I would say, I mean, it seems like, um, you know, one set of pressures is, is coming from the closure of alternative possibilities. Um, so in my case, for instance, that, uh, other models of imagining, um, uh, of imagining, um, you know, equality, um, it fall away during the 19 during the interwar period. So yeah. just to give two examples, uh, the kinds of imaginations of, um, of the idea of br- imperial citizenship, a, a British empire that could mm-hmm. secure the rights of its subjects, wherever they may be, begins to be uh, undermined in the, in the, in the early part of the 20th century. It does so both in part because, um, uh, there, a racial imaginary of the British Empire means that um, migration and mobility gets restricted of, of um, Indian subjects, uh, also West Indian subjects. Um, so th- the sense that you know one version of solving the empire problem was just to create equality within the empire uh, rapidly falls away. The other is, I think, the same period generates other imperial imaginaries. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in part inspired by the example of Japan, um, mm-hmm. uh, but varieties of pan-Asianism, pan-Islamism. Um, my new work is on Garveyism. So there's these other attempts to think about imperial, other imperial structures, a black empire, Asian empire, as a counterpower to, um, um, you know, to European empires. And I think this, this begins to uh, fall away as the idea of empire uh, increasingly becomes delegitimized. And it does so, I think, primarily on democratic grounds, right, on the sense in which these imperial structures are going to be necessarily hierarchical structures, right? And the kind of democratic egalitarian aspirations, I think, undermine the possibility that empire, counter-empires could could challenge this view. I think that's a final, um, you know, alternative that that also um, begins to recede is one that imagines... uh, uh, you know, uh, world revolution in in the wake of, of the Russian Revolution mm-hmm. as as the site and space through which um, imper- imperialism might be overcome. And someone like George Padmore begins in the space. He's a you know active in the Communist International. He's thinking through in the nineteen twenties and thirties how to think about. Um, the the status and condition of colonial labor, right, uh, and the ways in which the colonial labor fits into a kind of global conception of of um, of a revolution, um, uh, but that space also increasingly becomes uh, increasingly gets closed. I think both as uh, both after you know the kind of settling on a policy of socialism in one country, but Mm. also as there becomes a real anxiety or worry that people like Padmore are engaged, are too 
too nationalist, right? There, and this is in a period when he's writing a lot about Liberia and Ethiopia and other places, uh, Haiti. So, um, and there's a sense that this is kind of a bourgeois nationalism. Um, uh, so he um, is kicked out uh, slash resigns from uh, the Communist Party, and this is a moment in which he he, he begins to think in ways that lead to the Pan-African Congress of 1945. Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways, one way to tell the story of the rise of the state is as a story of the closure of these other alternatives. I think a second equally compelling story, and this is one told in an earlier book by Manu Goswami in Producing Mm -hmm. India, is a sense that um, in 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 this context of, a deterritorialized empire, uh, uh, which in which the colonies are subordinated, in, economically subordinated, uh, the territorial conception of something like India becomes a way of, of reimagining economic relations. Right, <laughs> um, so it 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 becomes the counterpart to uh, an empire for which. Um, the space of the space of India, uh, or the space of India, becomes a way of kind of counteracting a deterritorialized economic integration of, of the colonies and an uneven integration of the colonies. So nationalist thinkers kind of produce India as an economic space. Um, um, Fascinating. This might explain why the six hundred or so princely states uh, fade away in the late nineteen forties. In India, which might not have been um, that clear to contemporaries or 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 forlorn in a way. Yeah, there's some great work on on the princely states. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's a, a in this in this surprising journal. Well, surprising that this set of things would be in this journal, but the journal Ab Imperio published a, a, a kind of special issue on post-colonial federation and there's two essays by one by Rama Mantna uh, and one on Kavit, by Kavita Datla who both of which examine kind of the politics of the princely states um, and the different imaginations that you know um, uh, were circulating around how to think about the princely states as an alternative space uh, to this, this nationalist conception of India. But I think what that suggests, as with the kind of all this new work on federation, is that the nation state, it wasn't, um, it's not that it was, it took a long time. It was a process by which it actually became the dominant form, right? And that that process was uneven. It was not realized, it was realized at diff- in different time horizons at different places, Um uh, yeah, so so in some ways we have to kind of distend our uh, conception of when and how the nation state became the dominant form. Well, I know what I'm reading next. Uh, thank you. Wonderful. Um, ultimately, you contend that the task of building a world after empire remains incomplete. Uh, if the idea of self-determination failed, how can these democratic and egalitarian aspirations of anti-colonial worldmaking be rekindled in in the here and now yes i mean i think this is a crucial question and um 
uh, I also have not great answers for this. I mean, I think um, my own approach in this book and just generally in my work is to look at historical examples or, you know, actual actors in the world and try to kind of reconstruct what they're, what I take them to be doing and saying and thinking. Um, so it's hard to say in some sense in the contemporary moment, um, what, where to look for those actors, right? Like what, 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 who should we be thinking through, et cetera. But it seems to me there's a few challenges and um, questions that, this period leaves in the contemporary moment. Um, so I think w- one is, um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, there was this interest in thinking about the domestic and the international together, nation building and world making together. And um, I think on the one hand, you know, and the the project failed on both sides, right? So, um, or yeah, it was only partially realized on both sides. So I think, one set of questions in the contemporary moment is that um, uh, how to think about uh, de- domestic democratization, right? Um, in, and think through uh, these kind of conditions of international inequality. So I think that's one way of saying it, our questions, some of our questions remain at the core of the same ones, um, but there is this um sense in which our answers to that question may not be, won't be the same ones, right? Um, so I don't imagine that, uh, yeah, that ours will take the form, say, of that kind of um, strong regional federation may not be the, the, the exact answer in the contemporary moment. And I think also the answer to these questions, the kind of domestic democratization and the external question of hierarchy may pull in different directions, right? So I think the domestic questions say about how to democratize post-colonial states, how to think about um, the pluralism of these states, a question that someone like Nkrumah, for instance, diminished in his own time, right, really necessitate thinking about um, forms of decentralization, right? And uh, there's a great... um, review article by um, Merve Fajdula called just the historiography of federalism that really looks at these kind of decentralized uh, visions of decolonization um, that were in play in the same period I write about. And there, those those are uh, kind of accounts of federation that have a deep critique of the kind of co- of the state as a coercive institution um, and they imagine uh, more localized, uh, decentralized forms of rule. I think there's a lot of generative possibility in those for thinking about democratization, for thinking about uh, popular participation, right? And for mitigating some of the conflicts around, say, ethnic and religious pluralism. Um, at the same time, I think that the vis-a-vis the central centralizers or uh, there's also this, how does that kind of decentralized structure, how would it um, mitigate against or have a response to these questions of, you know, f- um, foreign domination, neo-colonialism, et cetera. I think that the, how to square those two, I'm not exactly sure. Right. So I think that's one question that remains that remains with us, but has to be asked differently in light of the um 
failures and limits of the, the, the moment of decolonization. I think the second has to do with just, um, you know, the altered political economic context we find ourselves in. I mean, uh, the, the, you know, the new international economic order, the visions of development that underwrite this whole period are articulated in a context where ongoing economic growth is still imagined as a horizon of possibility, right? And I think we we inhabit in a place both ecologically that growth is impossible, right? And also economically, it seems like uh, to have hit a set of real roadblocks. So what it means to build more egalitarian um, um, worlds in a context in which we can't depend on economic growth, um, I think, is, is a question that's very different for us than it is for them. So these are just places I think I would start in terms of how to think about these questions for the present. Last but not least, uh, where has world making after empire led you? Uh, what are you currently working on, Dr. Gerachu? Great. Um, so I'm, you know, moving slightly backwards in time and uh, looking at um, uh, Garveyism, uh, the movement sort of uh, uh, named after Marcus Garvey, um, and and it's a project that takes me from the late 19th um, century into, you know, right about where this book uh, begins. Um, and I'm interested in this movement because it's still, you know, the largest black um, um, mass movement. Um, um, it had, you know, members and, and chapters across the United States, but also throughout the Caribbean and on the African continent too. So it's a way for me to continue to think about my... Um, uh, interests in pan-Africanism and black internationalism, uh, but to return, to turn back to a moment in which this question of, of the nation state had not yet been settled. Right. So to think about what these forms of internationalism looked like at a moment in which um, the institutional form of decolonization was as yet undecided. Um, I think the, this project is also for me an opportunity to think more about popular politics and, and practices. So the first book really focused on statesmen and elites that focused on high institutional politics at the league, at the UN. And um, this will be, I think, a way of thinking more about um, mass movements. Dr. Gerachu, it was an immense pleasure having you on the show. Uh, thank you for joining New Books in History. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. My pleasure.